Hello, friends and listeners. Below the line, at least today's episode, is brought to you by a little project of mine called Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Want more creativity, more flow, more energy, and less stress? Go to magicmind.co to get the two-ounce shot that contains 12 magical ingredients that are scientifically designed to improve your productivity. Along with CEOs, doctors, musicians, even Navy SEALs, I take it every morning and have been for about six years after a trip to the ER from drinking too much coffee day to day. And it is the single most important part of my morning ritual to do more and stress less. Listeners know that I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind sleep, diet, exercise, alternatives to coffee, stress management, nootropics, adaptogens, anti-inflammatories, etc. And you can find the peer-reviewed research on the ingredients of Magic Mind on the site to learn more. Go to magicmind.co, that's magicmind.co, and enter promo code BTL for below the line to get 15% off and try it for yourself. I also wanted to tell you about MetaLab. You probably didn't know it at the time, but MetaLab has been the secret sauce behind products used by billions of people around the world, with a B, billions. They've been creating apps and products for over a decade with startups like Slack and Coinbase, as well as industry leaders like Google and Uber, and I have been recommending them to friends and founders of companies for years, way before starting this podcast. From delightful design to world-class engineering and everything in between, MetaLab works with teams of all sizes to sweat the details and build products that your users will love. I am a massive, massive fan of MetaLab. They are one of the only agencies that I consistently recommend and have been since my friends at Coinbase used them maybe six years ago and loved working with them. There are a lot of agencies out there, but if you're like me and obsessed with pixel-perfect products that people love to use, you've got to talk to MetaLab. Check them out at metalab.co. That is M-E-T-A-L-A-B dot C-O, metalab dot C-O. And when you get in touch, let them know that James sent you. And if you dig below the line, we'd love a review. That's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts. So every review matters. And if you're one of the fine folks that have already left a review, especially all the five-star ones we've gotten, know that we appreciate and read every single one. It only takes two to three seconds and we really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Raul Vora is a founder a couple times over with his last company report of getting bought by LinkedIn in 2012. His next company, the one in which I've become a customer and a major fan of, along with just about every other productivity enthusiast around the world, is called Superhuman. You may have heard of this fast-growing email application that easily cuts my inbox time in half each day. You may also be a customer and a fellow fan. For something that we all spend countless hours in each day, like email, very few companies have succeeded in captivating our attention in recent years. Superhuman is seizing this moment, and you'd be surprised by the foundational thinking that goes into the design of Superhuman. From this episode, you're going to get to hear about all the underlying design principles, the moments of joy, the key insights, and truly understood and appreciated frustrations that has made Superhuman such a fan favorite and has made Raul such a well-known founder in Silicon Valley and abroad. Similar to the product and the high-flying company, you'll hear about the underlying experiences that shaped Raul, 
and his entrepreneurial path, his moments of joy and moments of defeat, key insights when it comes to building and creating that he's earned over many years and multiple startups. And you'll also get to hear about the things he thinks a lot about, but rarely gets a chance to talk about on most business podcasts. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode from such a thoughtful and insightful founder. So without further ado, I give you Raul Vora. This is Below the Line. And we are live. Rahul, welcome to the podcast. James, thank you for having me. I am opening up some, uh, got some matcha bar. It's my favorite canned matcha drink out there. Matcha bar is called, I guess it's, the drink is called Hustle, but it's from the brand matcha bar. What are you drinking over there? I'm drinking out of a vintage mug. Actually, I'm going to turn on my video very briefly so you can see it. So you'll, you'll recognize this. This is uh, probably recorded. one of, yeah, maybe five mugs left that, that exist like this. Uh, cheers. <laughs> cheers, sir. Cheers. And yeah, you know, it's it's one of those uh, sentimental things. You, you work so hard to build something up. You have a baby, you sell the baby, and over time you have fewer and fewer physical manifestations of that life left. And this is one of the few things I have from that time. So it's become my coffee mug. Oh, that's excellent. As a creator and founder of, of a few different things, how do you balance the line of, you know, in each creator is different between looking back at what you've created and really, you know, only looking forward at what, you know, is to come. It's, you know, everyone from the outside could say, okay, superhuman is awesome. It must be great. But uh, and it, it, today, and, and, it, and it truly is. But I imagine in your mind, you're thinking what it can be two years from now, three years from now, five years from now. How do you balance looking backwards and, and looking forwards? No, it's funny you ask that. I've never deliberately looked backwards. And I think that's because the community kind of did it for me. And maybe Reportive is unique in that regard. It, you know, For, for those that, that don't know, it started it about 10 years ago. It was the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. Essentially, on the right-hand side of Gmail, we show you what people look like, where they're based, what they do, their recent tweets, links to their social profiles. It grew really rapidly. And less than two years later, we ended up selling that to LinkedIn, where it kind of went on to be a, a little bit of this cult phenomenon and existed for 10 years, popular with anyone who did email and who wasn't using Superhuman, of course. Uh, just sitting there on the right-hand side of Gmail, helping them be brilliant with so people. So useful. So useful. Well, thank you. And and it's exactly commentary like that that sort of kept bringing it back. You know, even if I didn't want to look backwards, the community would constantly remind me, oh, oh hey, you're, you're that person. You did this thing. I really loved Reportive. Uh, one of the craziest stories I ever heard was that someone met their significant other through Reportive. Or, I mean, they met them over email, but they sort of connected via Reportive. They ended up following them on Twitter, engaging on Facebook, and like going off to create this relationship together. So, I don't know. It seems to have a lot of impact on a lot of people's lives, and the community likes to remind me of it frequently. But, of course, increasingly, it's about superhuman. It's about looking forwards and, and what we can build from here on. 
when did and yeah i loved reportive and it, it truly was such a loved simple so simple it, it, i think many people were probably surprised that he, there was even a company behind it because the interface was so simple it was so uh seemingly in terms of screen real estate small and yet it packed such a punch to yeah to let you know who you were actually emailing with and not just the email address but uh the person behind it and yeah it's it was, it's so great and incorporated a little bit into superhuman it's not is it as you know feature parody is it as i love superhuman but i only use it on the ipad that's my device of choice i don't feel like it's as deep of uh of um you know the personal details as reportive was but maybe i'm just misremembering and idealizing the reportive kind of uh bio that it gave us there is indeed a little bit of a difference. So back then at Reportive, one of the secret sources to making it work was that I'd actually brokered a deal with LinkedIn. And so we had access to this super secret API. It was so hard to get. We were perhaps one of 20 companies that had access to this. Essentially, we could give LinkedIn a hash of an email address and they would return the LinkedIn public profile for that email. Uh, And that essentially gave us access to over 250 million profiles in Reportive. Now, it wasn't easy to get there. It took a lot of work to get that deal done. But that is why the product endured for as long as it did. In the first year or so, I was able to get that deal. And then for the 10 years thereafter, that's what the product ran on. Now, for Superhuman, we don't quite have that. Of course, LinkedIn is now owned by Microsoft. Microsoft has the own agenda. Uh, and we're using solutions like Clearbit. I think you're an investor in Clearbit, if I, I remember no, correctly. No, but I, but I love Alex, love the team. Okay, awesome. Yeah, Alex, for, for those who don't know, amazing founder, really, really great CEO. And uh, Clearbit is this company that has any number of interesting APIs, one of which can take an email address to a profile. In any case, we use technology like that, some inbuilt technology as well, to develop those profiles. And it's pretty interesting, actually, going from a product slash feature like Reportive where the entire point of the thing was contextual information in your inbox to building the inbox itself. And that Reportive functionality is perhaps less than 2% of what we do. There's just so much else in Superhuman and you kind of have to recalibrate as a founder and as a CEO and as a product leader and distribute your resources across all the things because it's no longer just the contextual features. Well, it's it's a fair trade. I love everything that's that is done behind the scenes and and just in the UI UX that you can see uh, on the surface with with Superhuman to make it so damn fast. Um, I don't want to make this a a commercial for Superhuman, but I think the I think the the phrase is you know two times faster than than Gmail, or at least that's the colloquial phrase that got me that people talk about on Twitter that got me interested in it. And it truly is. I, I really love the product. And w- I want to chat about Superhuman. But first, want to go, I want to zoom out. And one of the questions that I love asking people uh, on the podcast, and I gave you a little bit of a heads up because I know it's a, it is, I try to only have two questions going in every conversation and keep everything as conversational as possible. But one of the two questions that I give people a heads up on is, Tell me three stories that have helped shape who you've become. And I imagine these ha- these are way before superhuman. But tell me three stories that have helped shape you and your life professionally, personally, of who you've become, Rahul. And, and feel free to go back as far as you want in your life. 
Okay. So story number one, I'll tell you a story from my childhood. Story number two, I'll tell you a story from high school. And then story number three, I'll give you a story about reportive. How about that? That is perfect. And I just want to point out that I'm getting comfortable because I know that this is going to be a great storytelling session. And every creator that's listening to this, you know, storytelling and the mastery of, of you know, the, the technology of words is so critical to, uh, to building something of significance. And I love, when I listen to you on interviews or I, I've seen uh, you're a great writer as well, it's a similar feeling, getting comfortable because I know it's going to be good. So everybody listening, you're going to get some facts, but you're also going to get some sprinkling of a master storyteller with Rahul. So let's get into it. Uh, just how you even, the preamble was brilliant, uh, childhood, high oh, school. And, and so, yes, let's get into it. That's a, a tough act to follow. So yes, <laughs> sip your matcha, sit back, relax. Yes. Story time. Perfect. So I was one of those fortunate children to have been programming from the age of eight. This arose because both my parents are doctors. And of course, like any other pair of doctors, they would work late. And so what does a kid do when their parents are too busy to pick them up from school, at least on time? Of course, I went to the library and I would read the books. I read nearly all the books, started with the fiction books first, because that was what was most interesting to me. And then once I'd read those, I moved on to the nonfiction books, fairly quickly found the programming section, and at the age of eight started to teach myself how to program. And I spent three or four hours every single night programming, mostly making video games. That was really the hook for me. I've always been a huge gamer. I still am today. I run D&D tabletop games. I think obsess about game design, and it really stemmed from the young tender age of eight. And so you can imagine me as a kid spending all of this time programming, and I did this all the way up until going to university. So from age eight. And where were you? Where is Rahul at age eight? Age eight, I would have been in Manchester, which, uh, and this is in the UK. And so for those that don't know, Manchester is kind of like Seattle. I think it's easily north of 220 days of rain per year. Uh, it's not good for anything other than motivating bands to produce great music. Other than that, it's a fairly miserable place to be unless you're a kid with access to a computer and parents who let you get away with this. I just spent every single night teaching myself how to code. And the incredible thing about that is, I don't know whether you believe in the, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours idea, but by the time I got to university, I spent over 10,000 hours programming. And so I already had a solid, solid rather intuitive understanding of what makes an experience fun. And that meant at university, I could pull away from the craft of programming and focus on the science behind computers. And that turned out to be important later for a whole variety of reasons, as well as, and this is just as important, going to a ton of lectures, ton of seminars that were nothing to do with my degree, like design, like business, like psychology, like marketing, like all of the things that I'm doing now, I actually got a little bit of a foothold and a little bit of training in when I was at university. 
And at the time, when I was a kid, I just took it for granted that my parents, they didn't force me to, you know, like all of my friends, go get a job, go be a waiter, go work as a barback, go, you know, serve in the, the local takeout store. They didn't ask me to do those things. And they just let me follow my own passion. And that every single evening that I spent in front of a computer honing my skills. And I really wouldn't be where I am today, such as it is without that. So mom, dad, if you're listening, thank you. And do you think they did, was that deliberate and intentional or was it just kind of path of least resistance? All right, Rahul loves this stuff, so let's let him continue with it. No, I actually don't know. I've never really asked them. I'm gonna gonna add that to my mom, dad agenda time document and ask them the next time uh, we chat. But yeah, I think that's a great question. I think whether it was by design or by accident, it really gave me the freedom and the latitude to go and explore wherever my passions took me. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I think it's a, a lot of a lot of founders and creators that you talk to, they're pretty insatiably, uh, insatiably curious. And, and you would think it's with the 10,000 hours You'd think that would be, that would lead to kind of myopic, obsessive, stay in one tiny lane type of thinking. And though you, you meet great minds that have those 10,000 hours, they put those 10,000 hours in, it usually is in concert with three, four, five other things that they're also curious about, or what Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway famously says, a a cross lattice work of mental models. And so you know, you're mixing as much about business incentives with psychology, with nature, with, you know, just all kinds of different, different passions. And I think it's, it's beautiful that you had already had those 10,000 hours to where you could spend more time at university looking into other, you know, worlds. Uh, and university is a great way to do that. And yet that usually is the, it's it, arguably the best place to do that, but usually is, is uh, for many people, the op- the opposite of what they think. It's, you go to university, you major in X, and that thing is going to be the engineering, the foundation towards towards your career, your financial side of things. But it it seems in a in your experience that what I mean, your career was obviously computer science, but you seem to reflect on university as being almost everything but just programming. Is that accurate to to say that it was almost everything but programming? Yes, because, well, I went to the University of Cambridge and we have a very particular take on computer science. There was very little actual programming in our course. The craft of programming, at least at Cambridge, was more like a sink or swim situation. Either you could do it, and if you could, great, good on you, or you couldn't, and well, then you better learn how to swim real quick because we're kind of assuming you already know how we're here to talk about the science of computing, not programming. Programming is just a, a thing that you do, right? It's the craft. The science is the, the hardcore theoretical underpinnings that underlie all of this stuff. How do you design a programming language? How do you design a compiler? How does the internals of a computer system actually fit together? Like Those are the questions that I found really fascinating to dig into as well as spreading my wings just a little bit and exploring all of these other interesting ancillary things around computer science. I think you're right. I think if you're in university, and I've only ever been to the one, so I don't know how other universities work. But where I went, 
you could literally just turn up to any single lecture. You know, no attendance was taken. Wow. You were in the city of Cambridge. The lecture timetable was freely available to all. As a student, you could go to any single lecture. That's so simple and brilliant, and I've never heard of that. That is, uh, uh, maybe that's common knowledge amongst every, uh, everyone else, but I'd never heard that about Cambridge and certainly haven't heard of that in America, at least conventionally speaking. I'd, I've never heard of anyone doing that, of just being like, yeah, I started to uh, informally just attend this class because it was interesting. Um, you have the formal auditing process, but I knew maybe two or three friends that ever audited a class uh, formally certainly didn't know anyone that informally just dropped in that is is that is that the case for many schools universities in in the UK or or just Cambridge I think it's the case for almost all of them now there are certain university courses where you're simply not going to have the time I, I don't think a medical student for example would find it easy to add more things to their workload but as a computer science student I only had three or four hours of programmed lectures per day and the rest of the time was meant to be spent as I saw fit. You know, most people would spend their time studying and in the library and working on exercises. But you could, if you want, just go to a business studies lecture. A lot of my early understanding about entrepreneurship came from attending entrepreneurship lectures when I was at university. And what years were these that you were in university? Uh, so this will be For my undergrad course, 2002 through 2005, I did also start a PhD in 2006 in computer computer vision, machine learning, pattern recognition, but I dropped out of that about one and a half years in. It really wasn't for me. I I knew that what I really wanted to do was to start a company. What were you doing in between the, in 2006? For that year or two, I actually segued into Oh, do you mean what did I do after I dropped out of the PhD? No, no, the the year in between. You said it was yeah, two thousand two to oh five, and then started in oh seven. Well, I'm interested in what twenty twenty two year old Rose was doing. Yeah, great question. So this was my first professional stint as a game designer, one of the most fun oh, jobs cool. I've ever had. So I was working at a company called Jagex. The company still exists today, and they created a game a very well-known game called RuneScape, which at the time was the largest free online role-playing game in the world. Right, right. And you may have even played it. I'm, uh, yeah, and I'm not a gamer, but I have definitely heard of RuneScape, yeah. It was such a fun game, it, you know, kind of the, the precursor to World of Warcraft and uh, other similar games. And I was hired to come in and, and not program because... That isn't really what I wanted to do. I didn't want to solve technical problems or hard sort of computer science problems. I wanted to design narrative and do world building and sketch dialogue and action for characters and construct puzzles and really start to scratch this itch that I've had forever, which is answer the question, what is fun? And and can you make fun? And then can you deliver fun at massive scale? And I'll tell you, one of the biggest thrills of all time when you're working on a massively multiplayer online game like that is you make a quest or a part of the world. And I made a part of the world uh, at, at the south of the map, for those who remember the game. The quest was called Monkey Madness. And you launch this thing. And it's kind of like the traditional old fashioned launch. It goes live online at the same time for everyone across the world simultaneously. 
And I'm in the game. I had a special moderator character that was in the game so I could interact with the players as they were running through it, solving the quests, figuring out the puzzles, interacting with the non-player characters that I designed and done the dialogue for. And of course, you know, they were asking me for hints and I would refuse to give them. And it was just so much fun <laughs> to see tens of thousands of people play this thing live that you just spent months working on. That is cool. And and be able to interact with the person that made it. It's kind of a Wizard of Oz type of game interaction. That's really fun. What okay, just to take a pause from three stories. What what is fun? If if you've been obsessed with that question, what are some of the answers that come to mind when when trying to define something as ubiquitous, but yeah, not very well defined as fun? It is one of those rather nebulous philosophical questions, but but I can tell you once you start to get a handle on it, it's extremely powerful. So we have to start somewhere. So how about this? Let's try defining a game, and then we can sort of whittle that down into its more basic axiomatic parts. I would say that a game is something you play. I think that's pretty hard to argue with. You have a game. Should we play a game together? Yesterday I played this game. Let's play a game tomorrow. It's it's sort of built into how we use the word game. A game is something you play. But there are other things that we play as well. We also, for example, play with toys. And an interesting question to ask is, are toys the same as games? And once again, you can use the language the intuition that we have about the English language to figure out the difference. For example, we play games, but we play with toys. And therein lies a fundamental difference. A game is something you play. A toy is something you play with. So then you might ask, well, are there other things that we play with? The answer to which, of course, is yes. We play with our friends. Are our friends Therefore, toys, no, obviously not. Toys have a certain specific characteristic. Toys are objects. And so now our definition has become, well, a game is something you play. A toy is something you play with. In particular, a toy is an object that you play with. Almost like a tool for fun instead of uh, fun itself. Exactly. But... There are lots of different kinds of objects that you can play with, and not all of them would make for great toys. So I'm fiddling with a pen here as we're talking, and I'm sort of rotating it around my fingers, and you can imagine me playing with it, and I can go click, 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 click on the little switch on the end. Am I playing? Technically, yes. But am I having very much fun? Well, I'm having fun talking to you, but my interaction with the pen, no, that's not particularly fun. And so it turns out that some toys are more fun than others. And the crux is in figuring out why. And in particular, we can say that a good toy is an object that is fun to play with. Now, is fun just pleasure? I think that's a lot of people's first instinct, first intuition when I'm bringing in a a product manager or a designer into Superhuman, and we're having this conversation, I ask them what fun is. They might often say, well, is it pleasure? And a way to start dissecting this is, is what I call the try it with and try it without. Can you experience fun, but not experience pleasure? 
I don't think so. I can't think of any experience that's fun, but not pleasurable. But that's not true the other way around. I can think of plenty of experiences that are pleasant, but aren't necessarily fun. And an example that springs to mind is this idea of a relaxing head massage. Certainly very pleasant, but few people would describe that as fun. So pleasure alone is missing a certain something special. And the magic that it is missing turns out to be surprise. And in fact, our brain is hardwired to enjoy surprise. We can define fun as pleasant surprise. So a game is something you play, a toy is something you play with, a toy is an object you play with, a good toy is an object that is fun to play with, and fun is pleasant surprise. And tying this all the way back to Reportive and then Superhuman, one of the reasons why Reportive was fun was the pleasant surprise of learning something interesting or unique about the person you're interacting with. And one of the many reasons why Superhuman is fun are all the pleasant surprises that we have deliberately designed into every single part of the app. You know, it's it, and, I, and I would put a Superhuman in the camp of Slack in that it is I'm not I'm not that big of a Slack fan to be honest. Like it's uh, it's a useful product for certain circumstances, but uh, Superhuman is is insanely useful for me and my entire day for with something as core to how I operate as email. But they both share this this element of yeah these pleasant surprises and they're utility surprises in some ways, but it's it's still these pleasant surprises to your point. And I'm putting it together obviously are some connections between um, between Slack being, you know, and, and Stuart and the company being game designers before they created Slack. And and now I'm starting to put together that uh, I imagine you incorporated a lot of your learning and desire to build games into something as as much of a daily utility as email with with superhuman. So it's probably no no coincidence that it's designed by people that love designing games. It's just so much fun. It really is. I, you know, I, I also find it interesting that it's not just, you know, to get to that fun, to get to that pleasant surprise, there's something that both applications do really well, you know, and Slack, I don't, I, I just don't use that often. It almost just got, there's too much stuff going on that I just told people to email and and, uh, text me, but the, uh, for large organizations, it's, it's really useful, but I will say the onboarding for both applications so brilliant so uh, subtle but brilliant and they i imagine much of that must have been borrowed from game design in terms of and i've never really talked with a game designer about this but the onboarding to video games it has to be so flawless for you to just know what the hell is going on in this new universe you're you're orienting yourself in i imagine that's probably even bigger than the just the pleasant surprises is is all of the forethought that's gone into superhuman probably coming from, I don't know, you tell me from, from your background as a game designer. Indeed, there are so many different parts of superhuman where we've leaned on the knowledge that I've been able to gain over the years about game design. And just working as a game designer, I didn't really have a set of frameworks or a set of things that I could lean on. But as a founder, I've gone deep into the principles of game design. And as it turns out, there's no real unifying theory 
to create good games, we need to draw upon lots of different things. The art and science of psychology, mathematics, storytelling, interaction design. There, there are so many different pieces that make for a good game design, kind of like the cross lattice that, that you mentioned earlier. And so at Superhuman, we've identified a large number of key factors that contribute to a great game design. Just off the top of my head, I can name perhaps 10. There's goals, there's emotions, there's resonance, there's toys, there's needs, there's pleasure, there's focus, there's interest curves, there's flow. And each of these... Do you, do you, mind, saying, do you mind saying a handful of those again, Roel? Yeah, yeah, I can go through them again more slowly. So, uh, and I'll, I'll give a one-liner of each of them. Please, to talk please about do. Any. Uh, so, so there's goals. It turns out that good games require good goals, and there's a specific set of goals that are good for games. They're concrete, they're achievable, and they're rewarding. Then there's emotions, and the best game designers are extremely deliberate about the emotional journeys that their players go through. And then there's resonance. What is the core underlying theme that maybe you never explicitly call out about your game that resonate that, that could resonate with an audience and that resonates with all of your audience? The best entertainment experiences, and I argue the best software has a core theme that resonates. Then there's toys, which we talked a little bit about already, and then there's an art and science of how you make toys. Then there's needs, which is you know, a short way of referencing Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which most of us are probably familiar with, and it's very applicable when it comes to game design. Then there's pleasure and all of the various forms of pleasure, the majority of which, by the way, I don't even believe have been catalogued. There, are, I still uncover new forms of pleasure that I didn't know previously existed. What are some examples that come to mind of less understood or, uh, yeah, less understood examples of pleasure? Okay, so pleasure is one of these key attributes of a solid game design, and I would go so far as to say a solid product design. And plenty of game designers have written about this. There's a well-known game designer named Marc LeBlanc, and he articulated eight kinds of pleasure. And I'll list through these. I think most of these, perhaps with the exception of the last or the obvious. And then I'll give a list of some really interesting alternative forms of pleasure. Uh, so the first that Mark outlined is sensation. Now this could be visual, it could be audio, it could be touch, like the deliciously tactile click of an old-fashioned cherry keyboard. Just the act of pressing that key is pleasurable. It could be fantasy. This is the pleasure of being somebody else in some other world. Anyone who's played a role-playing game like Zelda or Mass Effect or The Witcher will have experienced this. Then there's narrative, the pleasure in following a dramatic sequence of events. This is in part what we watch movies and read books for. Then there's challenge, of course, the pleasure of increasingly difficult situations. There's fellowship, the pleasure of social interactions. There's discovery, the pleasure of exploring uncharted territory. I'm a huge fan of that one myself, personally. And this expression, the pleasure of creation and building. This is something that Minecraft really took to the next level. Uh, and then one that may sound odd at first glance is submission, the pleasure of passing time. And this is really where Zynga rose to greatness. Farmville and the other games that they made like that were all about submission. People, people who didn't understand it would often ask, well, why are you spending three hours a day just clicking on this poorly rendered farm? Well, because it was fun to pass the time. So those are sort of fairly obvious forms of pleasure, perhaps with the 
exception of submission, but it turns out there are so many more, possibly thousands. Uh, so here's a few that may not immediately come to mind. Anticipation, the pleasure of expecting pleasure. Completion, the pleasure of truly finishing. This is all too rare in real life. And, and that's why is this written, game, it like Is this written down in, in front of you, Rahul, or is this all just top of mind? I'm so, uh, this, this is something is really... I've studied intensely. So uh, a lot of this, by the way, if folks are interested to learn more, there's a talk that I've given on how to do good game design. I can share it, James, with you in the show notes for later. Please, please. Uh, and the best book on the topic, uh, many of, of which these are actually listed in and described in further detail, is The Art of Game Design by Jesse Schell. And he just covers so many important, interesting things like the forms of pleasure. Okay, sorry to interrupt. So anticipation, completion. Right. I was just saying about completion. Look, it's it's so rare. How many times do you, you start a TV series and you, you never really finish it? Or you start a project at work and it, it never quite completes? And, and that, unfortunately, is just the story of our lives. Stuff doesn't ever truly finish. If you can give somebody the sense of completion, an old school example would be when you you know, you, you finally finish a level of Tetris and the, the entire screen disappears in a, a cascade of exploding blocks. That, it, that sensation is rare. Uh, Schadenfreude. So this is a German word that means the pleasure in another's misfortune. And it may sound off-putting on first glance, but you know what? It drives many competitive games. Things like uh, Fortnite are built almost entirely on this idea of taking pleasure in getting ahead of somebody else or watching somebody else not quite do as well as you. You could look at, at almost all gossip uh, media as schadenfreude. schadenfreude. What's the actual German pronunciation? Uh, schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. So yeah, you could look at uh, half of media as, uh, as schadenfreude in many ways. Unfortunately, yes, I would go so far as to say that that's sort of an unhealthy expression of it uh, because it sort of becomes reinforcing and almost habitual. But there's a little bit of schadenfreude in every competitive scenario. Brilliant stuff. I don't want to stop you, but I do want to get back to the, the second and third story um, because I, I, I have a feeling that they'll all have this much packed within them. But, but but feel feel free to tie it in a bow in terms of other things that that have come to mind in terms of uh, pleasure that people don't usually think of as pleasurable. Sure. Okay, I'll pick one. Fiero. So this is an Italian word that means the pleasure of succeeding despite insanely overwhelming odds. And it's actually a pleasure that we aim for at Superhuman. You know, people come to us with massively overflowing inboxes. They've got millions of things in their inbox. Email is taking them three or four hours a day, and we get them to inbox zero. In fact, about 36% of people hit inbox zero in the onboarding, and more than half of people hit inbox zero within four hours of starting to use their product. And what do they experience? Fiero, that Italian word, succeeding despite all odds. Uh, and there's so many other pleasures, but I think that's a neat bow to end it on. That is awesome. That is, I'm smiling over here because it's. Uh, I wasn't expecting such a, a wealth of wisdom on this topic, but that is brilliant. Okay, well, what's the next story that comes to mind of of what has helped shape who you've become, Rahul? Well, I promised a childhood story, a high school story, and a reportive story. So, how about I tell the high school story? Please. 
was about 16 or 17. This may be surprising to those who don't know me. My favorite subject at school wasn't anything to do with computers. It was, in fact, biology. And uh, as it turns out, I was rather good at this, good enough that my school encouraged me to enter a, a national competition. It was called the National Biology Olympiad. Uh, anyone who's sort of pursued late high school, early university academics will, will know about the Olympiads. The, the most famous one is the one for mathematics, but it turns out they exist for most subjects. And so this was a nationwide competition for biology. And to my great surprise, I entered this thing and I came in the top 50 for the UK event. And I was invited to the national playoffs to determine who would be the best. Now, my school encouraged me to study really hard and to see if I could place in the top four. Because if I did, I would get to represent the UK internationally and compete against teams of four from 140 other countries to be, quote unquote, the best at biology. Now, this was really, really hard because on top of a full school workload and preparing for my Cambridge uh, interviews and entrance examinations, I was being asked to study and memorize entire textbooks of university biology, and I had about two months to do so. And I remember feeling incredibly stressed about this whole affair. So there was one day I go into school and I'm walking down the science corridor and I see the head of science in this corridor and I stop him and I explain my predicament and I tell him how much work I have, how tired I am. And I say, look, I just don't think I can do this. And he pauses and he stares at me with a stern look on his face. And then he did that quiet yell that only really old school or British teachers can do. He said, just do the bloody work, Mr. Vora. And you know what? I didn't have a good answer to that. So with my metaphorical tail between my legs, I, I went home and I, I did the bloody work. And as it turns out, I placed in the top four in the UK and I then went on to represent the country internationally. So now when I'm tired, I think of Mr. Rigby and doing the bloody work. And you know what? It's also been effective with other people. At LinkedIn, after we'd sold Reportive, I was working with a really fantastic engineer and he wanted to work on his public speaking skills. So I encouraged him to speak up uh, at conferences and you know sign up for talks and so on. He did, and awesomely, he got accepted. Now, a month away from the deadline, he comes to me and he says, Rahul, I'm too tired. I don't know if I can do this. I think I'm going to back out. Now, I didn't yell at him. I think that's a, a privilege that only old school British teachers get. But I did tell him this story. And we talked it through. And I told him the outcomes. A week later, he came back to me and he said, thank you. I did the bloody work. And he went on to deliver one of the best talks at that conference. So can work as a management technique as well. That's, that is great. What is, when you went to and, and saw Mr. Rigby, from the story, it sounds like it was a surprising response. He just deadpan said, do the work. It wasn't uh, comforting. What, what did you expect? What was going through your mind? And 
why do you think that that response was, at least as far as I understand it, a pretty surprising one and, and very terse and, and brief? Why do you think that was so surprising? What do you think you were actually at least thought you were looking for with, with your interaction with him? I think I was feeling extreme stress and I was looking for an easy way out. I was looking for him to say, oh, well, you can pull out if you want to. You know, it's really important for you to focus on your entrance examinations. I totally understand if you have too much going on, uh, which is kind of funny because I think that's what most managers would actually say in a work setting. But instead, he he came at it with the, like he, he knew, somehow he knew my psychology well enough that he could say the one sentence that would actually make me do it. And so he didn't come at it as a manager, but he came at it almost as a sports coach or a coach of performance. And he, he just pushed the right button in just the right way to make me work really hard. And I did, I worked so hard after he said that. I was like, well, uh, okay, I guess I'll do the bloody work. And I, I don't know how it worked. I don't know what he managed to tap into, but it turned out to be extremely effective. It's a really interesting contrast between a professor like that or a teacher like that and a manager today. You would ideally want the both uh, or both to, to be, I guess, both characters to to give that, I guess, to use a phrase we, we've been talking about, pleasure to the other person of overcoming a challenge. But it brings up the question of why a manager wouldn't have that type of response in, in 2020. And, and is that a healthy development or a devolution from, from what could be or what maybe a manager would have done 20 years ago? No, no. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a incredible manager by any means. I think my skills more lie in, in leadership and, and other areas. But I'm going through management training all the time. And, and there is this consistent theme of listening, of playing back what you've heard, of empathy. And, and by the way, I believe in all of these things. I, I do believe that that is the optimal way to manage true peer-to-peer relationships. And it makes me wonder, you know, is, is management different from coaching? Maybe there are these other forms of coaching that don't necessarily line up well to management. And this this sort of stern yell that was, was so effective. And, you know, you, you'd asked me for stories that have shaped me as a person. And, and this was one that immediately sprang to mind. If this teacher had treated me like an employee, I wouldn't have done the work. But he didn't. He treated me like an athlete. And so I did. And so there's some kind of difference there that I'm still trying to figure out and wrap my head around. I think it's a, um, there's a whole world within this dichotomy you're pointing out. The conventional colloquial phrase that people talk about here is managers, you know, they're shit shields and they protect their employees. And it's, and I think something is lost there when a manager is just an extension of protecting an employee versus what you're talking about, which is had your teacher just protected you, you would have been denied the, the chance to challenge you to rise to the occasion. And yeah, I've been through many of the same management training courses that I'm sure you've gone through with uh, building my own company to to 100 uh, employees and then at Airbnb with uh, being a, an executive there. And there's so much good that has come with more awareness and, and management, but it is along the lines of 
making it very comfortable to work somewhere. It's like, you know, the benefits of ergonometry and in Airbnb, they just set you up with an ergonomics expert that makes it very comfortable to work there. And and that is helpful. That is, as you you probably have it on your list, comfort is is maybe pleasurable in, in some regards, but man, is that far from the other rap sheet of things that you listed for for pleasure, the Fiora or the overcoming a challenge. Yeah, there's something there's something to that. I don't want to spend too much time there, but I imagine just like we have over the last 20 years, we look back and say management was uh, you know, the dark ages. Uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 20 years ago. I imagine we're going to have the same lens 20 years from now, and I bet it's going to incorporate some of this richness you're talking about, even within game design, where it isn't just, I don't know, monolithically, all right, management is supposed to protect, supposed to serve the the employee in, in kind of a narrow a narrow perspective, you could, you could say, in terms of making the workplace very comfortable uh, to work, which is Maybe an oversimplification, but it's certainly directionally what I what I have seen in Silicon Valley's make it very comfortable. I'll let you if you have any thoughts on that. Otherwise, it's something that I think we're both probably stumbling through and don't really have answers for. Yeah, no, I think this is a really interesting topic. the The one thought that you did trigger is there is, I think, a difference between managing and coaching and. Maybe managing subsumes coaching, and there are styles of coaching that aren't appropriate if you're also a manager. And, and maybe therein is the difference. If if you are a coach, first and foremost, and not a manager, let's say you are a sports coach, or in this case, this teacher wasn't actually my teacher, he was just a coach, then maybe you can say and do things that it doesn't make sense for a manager to say or do. But maybe over time, with enough trust and building up the, the muscle memory of communication between a manager and an employee, you can get to that point where you can be a coach. And I think one of the things that a coach has to be able to do is to tell the brutal, honest truth. And what Mr. Rigby did for me in that scenario, although very tersely, was to tell me the brutal, honest truth. And I'm imagining what he thought was, this kid can do it. This kid has potential. He just needs a little bit of a push so I'm going to provide that push. Go do the bloody work. Like he, in in that moment of pause, I'm imagining that's what he went through. That's a great uh, underlying virtuous pattern you've yeah, you've you've touched on with tell the truth. That's a, a fascinating. Uh, that's a great story, and and I I'm just I'm thinking about it in, in my own my, in my own life. There are moments either with uh, my parents or with. Uh, I've got three older brothers or or my favorite coaches. And yeah, the most life-changing moments uh, in the dynamics with them. I'll tell a, a small, small story with with one of my brothers that I th- probably think about five times a year. And it was a phenomenal education that I learned from one of my older brothers, but it was such a tiny little story. I was 24 and I was living in San Francisco and I was back in, in Texas for a wedding. And I had rented a tux for this wedding and I was heading to the airport, hadn't had a chance to return the tux, asked him to return it. And he was like, yeah, sure. I'll return it for you. Love you and, and have a safe flight back to San Francisco. And he returned the the tux for me, but he noticed that I had just thrown the tux into the, the little tailor's bag that the tux, uh, the rentals come in. And, and I had just thrown it in there from probably a wild, you know, 
late night of celebrating a friend's wedding and hadn't didn't take the time to take care of something that I was just renting and didn't own and just thought, uh, I imagine I just thought no one would know. And he called me later that day and left a voicemail that I listened to as the land, as the plane landed here in San Francisco. And the voicemail said, hey, James, I, I saw the tux that you put in the bag and you had just thrown it in there. And I wanted to say you're better than that. And if you're not, then you should be. And I almost get like emotional thinking about that because it was a seven, eight second voicemail. But he said, you're better than that. Uh, and if you're not, you should be. And it was this small little life detail of uh, and, and lesson of doing the right thing. And he was absolutely, talk about truth, he was absolutely right. And that eight second voicemail changed probably how I conduct myself when no one's looking in more ways than, than you know, my brother will ever know. And it's uh, through that truth that, you know, the holding to a high accountability or standard, like your teacher sounds like he, he held for you, seeing the potential for someone to be better than what they might be attempting to be, and then uh, telling them that truth. Yeah, it sounds like it, it oftentimes can come down to a sentence and, and be life-changing. So that's a, that's a re- really cool story, Roel. That is a cool story. I just, I just want to say thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm getting emotional over here, even though I didn't experience it. I, I can feel it in your voice and, and the way that you tell it. I think you, you hit it on the head when you are, are taking the courage and time uh, and have the perspective to divulge truth to, to someone you care about. I think it's, um, it sounds like in both of our cases, it was very meaningful. Uh, what is the third story that, that comes to mind in terms of things that have helped shape who you've become? Sure. Okay. So I promised a kid story, a high, high school story, and uh, this is going to be a reportive story. So one of the oddest things about reportive was its lack of launch. We never really launched Reportive properly, and then suddenly one day it happened. I remember starting to work on the product. It was back in January of 2010. January the 10th, 2010 was the day I wrote the first line of code. And about four or five weeks later, I had our first few users. And at this point, it was just me working on it. I was uh, literally one person working on it by myself. And did you have the uh, the designs for it to be this massive company? Uh, what were what was your kind of psychological state as you were creating that first version? And were you in San Francisco at this time? No, I was in the UK. I was in Cambridge. I'd long since graduated, started a PhD, dropped out, did something else, did another company that didn't quite take off, and then was working on this. And you ask about my psychological state. That was actually a really great question because, truth be told, I was quite depressed. I'd just come out of another failed company, actually two failed companies, and uh, was beginning to doubt myself and whether I could actually pull this kind of thing off. And so, you know, I thought to myself, ah, well, screw it. Let's just, let's just sit down and build something. And, and no, I didn't really have designs for a huge company at that point. Uh, I didn't even know if it was a thing that could be monetized or or could even be a business. I did believe that it was something that people would want. And the reason why I believed people would want it is I wanted it. 
Uh, and there's a sort of a hidden part of the story. So I'll do a quick sidebar. As I was exiting the university, when I left my PhD, I navigated my way to running the part of the university that helps staff and students create companies. And the way that I would do that is I would raise money from VCs, from angels, from businesses into a fund, and then we'd give it to these startups so they could get off the ground. We were the very, very first checks into startups. You know, speaking as someone who's raised tons of money, uh, now looking back, it seems tremendously easy. But at the time, it was incredibly hard. And this isn't like raising money for a company, by the way. You're not selling equity. There's no dream of getting rich. This is charity work. This is not-for-profit fundraising. And when, when founders come to me and they're complaining about how hard it is to raise money for their company, I just remind them that if they want perspective, go try raising money for a not-for-profit where the only thing you're selling is the feeling of doing the right thing and other ancillary benefits. And you've That's got to com- hard. compete with 13 other million uh, nonprofits essentially selling the same thing of uh, doing the right thing or feeling better for uh, you know helping a cause. Exactly. It turns out raising money for a, a startup is comparatively easy. In any case, I had this sort of trial by fire that, believe it or not, was... Uh, really the the first exposure to any kind of work that I'd ever had uh, outside of being a game designer. And I was like, I I need more tools. I I barely remember who I spoke to yesterday, this person I'm emailing right now. If only there was something in my email that could let me know who they were. And that's where my personal need from Reportive came from. It was a pain that I experienced myself when I was trying to do not-for-profit fundraising. So in any case, Many years later, I sat down, I was depressed, I just wanted to build something that scratched my own itch, and I didn't know at the time that everyone else would want this thing. I just wanted it. And so I built this thing, four weeks later I'm kind of done, and I have 10 users. And this is Cambridge, England. Cambridge is a uh, it's a pretty small town, like 100,000 people. So it's a student town. There's 20,000 students there, 10,000 undergrads, 10,000 postgrads. Uh, and so it's kind of sleepy. And so Friday at around 2 p.m., people kind of bunk off work early and they go down to the pub. They start drinking beer. Uh, we drink a lot of beer in the UK, obviously. And, and so that, that's what I did. That's just what people did. And in fact, I don't even think you could buy a cocktail in Cambridge, even if you wanted to at that time. Uh, so, so in any case, we went down to the local pub, the Golden Hind, me and my startup buddies, and two or three drinks in, probably around 4 or 5 p.m., not much is happening by that point. I'm thinking about ordering some food, and then my phone starts going crazy. To, to give you a sense of, of when this was, I think this was an iPhone 3GS. So I take this thing All right. out, 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 out of my pocket, and it's like buzzing like crazy, and these notifications are flying by, and it's Heroku. And Heroku is complaining, saying, your servers are falling over. I'm like, well, why the hell are my servers falling over? And so I had this app on my phone where I could uh, connect to my Heroku instances and and see what's going on. And fortunately, uh, I could immediately dial up the number of dynos. So I went from one dyno to like 20. And then I go to my terminal uh, and I type in on my phone, uh, user.count, and it reads 40. And then I hit up 
and I press enter and it read 400 and I hit up and I press enter and it read 1000 and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? 1000 users out of nowhere. Like this just doesn't make any sense. And so I somewhat inebriatedly run back to the office and uh, open up my laptop and sit down and I, I start Googling and it turns out that somehow the press had found our webpage. Now we had a public webpage. I didn't tell anybody about this, but the press had somehow found it. And it was the next web which broke the story at the time. Then it went to Mashable, then it went to TechCrunch, then it went to like all of the other web 2.0 articles. This was in 2010. And it drove an insane amount of traffic. Now in that 24 hours, we attracted over 10,000 users. In the next few weeks, tens of thousands of users. And this was just for some random person who made an app living in Cambridge, goes down to the pub on a Friday, and then boom, three weeks later, 30,000 users. Wow. I remember this. I remember this and and remember loving the product, loving the product, but, but still didn't even know that this was a product. It it did kind of defy categories of a of a company. You know, you have ten years later, Honey as a as a Chrome extension sells for four billion. Ten years ago, as as this Gmail plugin, it was it was just this insanely useful thing uh, that ever it was just like everyone should have this. But yeah, it was unclear exactly what you know if it was a company. I'm sure yeah, that's to the outside. I imagine for you, even maybe even more so unclear of what do you have on your hands. But whatever it is, everybody is really loving it. Honestly, it it felt like a fairy tale. I I used to read Paul Graham's essays. I still read Paul Graham's essays, but like at the time when I didn't live here, that was my exposure to Silicon Valley was early Twitter and PG's articles and Mark Andreessen's articles and all the other people who were writing at the time. And to suddenly find myself with a thing was crazy. I, I had every single VC fund reach out to me, which living several thousand miles away, you know, th- th- these were companies and, and people that almost felt theoretical until suddenly they're pinging me in my inbox and saying, am I raising money? I didn't even know how to raise money. I didn't, SAFE didn't exist. I didn't know what a convertible note was. I had no idea what how any of this stuff worked. And uh, suddenly it was all happening. Do you mind giving a little more of the backdrop of the two failures? Because I imagine your emotional state at the time, and you, and you touched on it a little bit, was so colored by those previous experiences. Do you mind giving listeners a little a little more color of what that's like to and what that was like for you for you to, you know, just from from my own experience, I imagine it's you're setting out to build something. You're telling everyone you know about it. You're building up this hype. You probably have at this point, you know, Cambridge uh, PhD student, like you you've succeeded in everything you've ever tried to do. And it flops. And then you, against all odds, do it again with a second. Uh, and then it flops. And and yeah, do you mind building that out for for listeners of what that backdrop was really like? Well, it's funny you mention the PhD because I didn't succeed at that. I, I dropped out one and a half years in. And there was a backdrop of a conversation that I had with the head of departments for computer science, who also happened to be the pro-vice chancellor for research at the whole university, a really, really senior figure. And I felt so unbelievably guilty. James, I cannot tell you how guilty I felt 
for leaving this PhD. I mean, this was a research council funded PhD. Some PhDs, most of them, in fact, are funded by industry. So when the student quits, um, it's it's a commercial entity that that's lost their money, but you know they're only ever doing this because they were trying to fund some research anyway. And there's always a, a long line of PhD students who would continue the research after you. It's not a big deal. It's not like the university is going to lose money. When a research council student quits, the university does not get that seat the next year. And so I, I was struggling with this decision so much. I, I was unhappy studying the PhD because I didn't think I would build anything of any note or have impact. And I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I, I went out for dinner with uh, this professor, Professor Ian Leslie, and he, over dinner, just asked me this question. He, he said, Rahul, I can see you're incredibly stressed about this, and it's quite possible we'll lose the research funding for your seat next year. And I said, yes. And he said, but do you know what the point of university is? And I said, I guess not. You're probably about to tell me. And he said, yes. The point of university, it's not the grades. It's not the studying. It's not even the research. The point of university is to help you figure out who you are supposed to be. And I think we just did that. So by all means, walk forward and be free. And we finish our meal. And this is this sort of rinky-dink Greek restaurant in the center of Cambridge. We come downstairs and we, you know, step out into the, the chill night wind. I think it was snowing on that day, so we, you know, wrap up real warm. And uh, I shake his hand and we start walking in separate directions down the street. He gets about five paces and he stops and he turns around and he says, Rahul, one more thing. And I said, yes. And he says, People will consider this a failure. I don't know if you've failed before, but if I were you, I wouldn't make a habit of it because those things start to repeat themselves. And I was like, whoa, that is heavy. So I basically said, all right, I get away this time, but the next thing needs to succeed. And it's with that backdrop that I went into these two failed companies. And so, you know, three big failures, one after the next. And so the next thing was uh, a company called Mojo. And the coolest thing about this company was the domain name. We had the domain name Mo.jo, which sounds cooler than it is in practice, because at the time, the country of Jordan was constantly falling off the DNS system. Uh, So it was hard to operate a reliable website. Uh, But yeah, Mojo was was a phenomenal idea. Uh, We had the idea for AngelList essentially way back when. You know, we we saw Kickstarter at the time, and we wanted to come up with a way for for equity crowdfunding. And in the UK and in Europe, it's a lot more difficult than it is here in the US. But we'd figured out loopholes in the legislation, essentially, that would allow us to do this in a legal fashion without falling foul of uh, public securities law and so forth. And I, I just remembered who I'm talking to. You, you should know more about this. Than I, 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 I know quite a bit about the world over there as well as, I don't know if I ever came across Mojo, but what year was this? 2008? 
2009? This would have been 2000, yeah, exactly, 2008, 2009. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, I was building a crowdfunding platform in Cape Town, South Africa, of all places at the same time. And so, yeah, you could count on, on two hands, the number of people building in this space and, and, uh, that early on. And, um, so I may, I may have come across Mojo at, at some point and I will definitely confirm very cool domain name. <laughs> Thank you. But what ended up happening was I was the CTO of that company. I hired a good friend of mine, Sam Stokes, to be the first engineer uh, and uh, on the founding team. And the, the CEO, Stu McTavish, he was a dear friend of mine. But Stu and I had constant communication difficulties that ended up becoming arguments, differences in philosophy about where we wanted to take the business. Uh, and ultimately, the business, which had raised a small amount of angel money, about $50,000, which you know may not sound like anything for folks who live in San Francisco, but if you're living in a student town, actually it goes quite a long way. We just couldn't get it off the ground. You know, It ended up being a consultancy. Uh, we even applied to Y Combinator, and this was back in the day when you would get actual real feedback from PG and uh, the rest of the team one-to-one. And I remember PG telling me, this is just a consultancy. I don't think this is going to be a big business. And so after two years of working on that, that just kind of fizzled out and, and didn't really go anywhere. But there's always a silver lining to every single one of these experiences. And the silver lining in this case was that I had become a very competent web developer. Now, for folks who are competent web developers, there's there's obviously a ton of technologies you need to know. You need to know simple stuff like HTML and CSS inside out. You need to know JavaScript inside out. You need to know the frameworks of the time inside out. Today, of course, it's React. Back then, it was things like jQuery. Uh, you need to know how to run servers, how to do infrastructure, how to work with databases, how to handle security, and, and all of the other myriad things that come with actually building a web app. And it just so happened I was in the right place at the right time, leaving Mojo. I had all the skills to build a web app. I didn't immediately jump into building Reportive because I I had this itch to scratch, which was I wanted to build a game. And I had this idea of taking a trading card game or a collectible card game like Magic the Gathering and, and transitioning that to be online. And so what I wanted to do was work with a well-known series of fantasy books. Uh, I, I won't name the author on air, but he's a very well-known fantasy author. Um, and I I'm a huge fan of his books. He's one of my favorite fantasy authors of all time. I've read all of his books inside out and sort of know them encyclopedically. And I wanted to create a series of uh, fantasy trading cards based on that, that world. Uh, and so I essentially stalked this this author, in, in a very nice way, I, I turned up to conventions. Uh, I went to to hotels uh, uh, and, and you know met him and sort of pitched him this idea, and and he said yes to my great surprise. And, and there's a there's a very old lesson in there which has been told by many other podcast guests, so I won't belabor it. But there is no substitute to just turning up and, and being your amen. Right? Yeah. I mean, you've probably done that a million times, but the, get on the get on the plane. Exactly. And I, I remember telling someone uh, just recently that I probably still fire off three to five cold emails that never get replied to today, uh, every day. And I'm just after, I don't know, 25 of 
no response cold emails. You just don't keep track anymore. So for for listeners that that uh, feel like you know their their third or fourth or fifth cold email to an investor or a recruit or whatever goes unreplied to, just get to the point where it's helpful to get to the point where you just aren't keeping track at all, and you're putting yourself out there so often that you now are just you know you're pleasantly surprised when it actually works. And so yes, tilt my company came down to going to meet Gary Vaynerchuk, who was speaking in Dallas, Texas. You know, I also felt that million miles away from Silicon Valley and startups. Ended up not meeting him. Uh, I guess I met him briefly, 10 seconds, but then going to meet another speaker about 30 feet away that had spoken right before him that no one was trying to meet. And that ended up being maybe the single most important you know, uh, point of my my career was meeting that person. So yes, showing up is repeatedly, is uh, it is 99% of the equation. Couldn't agree more. So I showed up and met this guy and I pitched him on the game and he loved it. And he loved it because I didn't come at him as a game studio, which many folks had previously done. I came to him as a fan and as a knowledgeable fan. And and as a kid who was excited and enthused and he wanted to help. So he said yes. And I ended up having dinner with his family and attended his readings and, and you know, sort of became an acquaintance and verging on friend and ended up meeting his uh, agents down in London. Uh, we negotiated a royalty agreement. Uh, we got that signed and we were on the verge of getting everything done. And then he pulls out at the last minute. Uh, and I'm seven or eight months, maybe even nearly a year into this project. And that, that dealt a, a devastating psychological blow to me. And it's kind of funny looking back on it because now I think if that happened to me, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, you know, shrug that off, go and do the next thing. But at the time it felt so, so significant. I think because it was the third failure in a row. And I remember at the back of my mind in that bracing cold wind of a Cambridge night, Professor Leslie, who by the way, was like almost seven feet tall, just saying, make sure whatever you do next succeeds. You don't want a reputation. And I was like, oh shit. There's another failure. Yeah, right. And so, um, you know, I, I went back home. I sort of moved in with my parents for like a month just, you know, to have have company and to have folks around. And I just ended up playing video games most of the time. I think for like six, eight, ten hours a day, I was playing video games. And after about two weeks of this, maybe it was Christmas Eve or the day after Christmas, my mom walks in and she's like, you know, what are you doing just playing video games? You 25 years old, 26 years old, your your friends all have jobs and some of them are settling down. They've bought houses and like, they're just getting on with their lives. What are you doing? And it's really stressful. Like imagine being 25, 26 and you still haven't earned any money. You haven't done anything. And I didn't really know what to say. And my mom gave me like this incredible lens, this tool. And she sat down and she she said, look, I know you feel like a failure, but all failure is, is the difference between expectation and achievement. What if just temporarily you forget you had any expectations and reset emotionally and then do something you're good at? Like, just think about what you're good at doing and go and do that doesn't really matter what it is. Just go and do something you are good at because you will enjoy doing it. 
And what was I good at? Well, I just come out of this experience of learning how to be a really good web developer. And so this idea for reporter popped into my head, rather cliche in a shower as I was thinking about, you know, my experience and pain trying to raise not-for-profit fundraising. And I sat down to build that app. And then a month or two later, there I was with 30,000 users. Wow. That is a great, great story. I want to fast forward to Superhuman a little bit, and I would love to ask you what what was the psychological side of being at LinkedIn, being this entrepreneur and being at LinkedIn for two years? What was that like on a scale of one to 10? I'll give you my perspective of my two years of my tour of duty at uh, at Airbnb after our acquisition there. But what was that that experience like going from creator building three companies in a row to then being at LinkedIn, the good and, and the bad that you that you can that you feel like you can openly talk about. Gosh, there's so much. Let's see. So the good is, you know, finding a real long-term home for this beloved product. And I think we were one of the lucky few acquisitions that ever happened where the thing survives. Reportive survived for 10 years, almost to the day. It finally got shut down just a few months ago in March, but that was 10 years from the point where we started it. And that's kind of amazing. It, you know, it f- feels like a, a real contribution. I know it was an inspiration to many and something that me and, and the rest of the team can look back on and, and genuinely feel incredibly proud to have achieved. What, what did they use? the fe- Did they roll the feature set into something else? Why was it shut down? Do you know? Uh, that, that's a great question. I don't really know the, the sort of the internals of it. When when big companies shut things down, it's often not because the products aren't beloved. Often they are. And that, that's why there's so much angst in re- in response, and there certainly was when Reportive was shut down. But because it was no longer strategically useful, or it didn't quite have the the impact threshold that it needed to have. And I can only assume, this is pure speculation, I, I haven't worked at LinkedIn for a long, long time. But now that LinkedIn is part of Microsoft, much of the work is around integration. It's around finding synergies between the Microsoft portfolio and the LinkedIn portfolio. Uh, and these little vestiges of acquisitions probably don't matter that much anymore. Because most of the most of the upside is, is actually going to be around building a coherent suite and a really robust ecosystem. AKA a walled walled garden of sorts. But no, I totally, totally hear you. Uh, That does make sense. And and so, yeah, what was it like for those two years of going from being your own boss to to working in in a pretty massive organization at that point in LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn was big and growing insanely fast. So I joined as a product manager our team, which was tiny, just four or five people, five including myself, we joined, uh, all stayed together, which was critical to the acquisition. We wouldn't have done it unless we were, unless the company was acquired to continue doing company stuff. But my job changed significantly. I went from being a founder and a CEO to being a product manager. And as a founder and as a CEO, your job is to find the needle in the haystack. As a product manager, your job is to move the needle. The haystack has long since gone. And it took me a while to realize that. I think 
I'm a pretty darn good founder, but I am at best a mediocre product manager. And realizing that that was a transition that I had to make at that time, I think if I were to reflect, I would say it took me too long. Now, if I were to somehow end up in that scenario again, it would be very different. I now have patterns of success. I, I know what good product management leadership looks like, and I know what bad product management leadership looks like. But at the time, I had no idea because LinkedIn was the first actual job I ever really had. And then, of course, there's the difference in like attitude. Think about the best founders you know. The best founders I know would run through brick walls, scale mountains, swim through sewers to, to achieve success. Like they no holds barred. The best product managers I know are very different. They are diplomatic. Their number one skill is probably listening and driving towards consensus. They're excellent systematizers, project managers, planners, optimizers, and strategists. The, the raw energy and chutzpah that a founder needs actually doesn't translate that well into a large company that's doubling in size every single year. Right. I totally agree. I won't uh, go into my experience at Airbnb too much, but I, I completely agree that it's um, to the point that one, and another executive at Airbnb told me one time, this is when I probably knew, okay, this probably isn't a long-term fit, was about uh, probably 13 or 14 months in. And he said, James, a bit of advice, don't care so much. And I was like, holy shit, okay, this is going to be very tough for me to, uh, to gel with, with what's being asked me if, I'm, if a big piece of advice is, is to not care so much. And, and I don't think it was, um, I think it was, a, it was a, a virtuous piece of advice of don't get wrapped into the outcome so much that, that you're willing to potentially bulldoze other projects or do whatever it takes because with limited resources, it might take away from something else. But as a founder, you absolutely need that uh, that energy of doing whatever it takes because it is, you know, livelihood wise, it's uh, life or death for you and your company. Exactly. And then going into starting Superhuman, I love asking repeat founders what their idea maze was like as they navigate towards. Okay, I'm going to put the rocket boosters back on. Uh, lose control again, start something that could maybe kill me um, in uh, in a metaphorical sense that it could fail at. But this is the idea that I'm willing to put all of those chips in and into and all that risk on the line for. What was the idea maze like for like you for Superhuman? And uh, when did you know? Okay, this is what I'm going to start a company around. I actually knew well before I left LinkedIn. It was probably a year before. I left that I recall being in the Mountain View cafeteria, which by the way, if you haven't had lunch at LinkedIn, it's really, really quite something. And I was with I the whole we, I think we might, we might have, we might have co, uh, not a panel, but we were kind of the, I think we were judges of a hackathon at LinkedIn uh, many, many years ago. And uh, I think it was you, me, and one other person. Um, yeah, beautiful campus. I can't imagine what the the lunches are like. Is phenomenal, massive, sprawling campus, LinkedIn. That is a it's a crazy small world. Then, if that's the case, I, I think don't think so. they're there anymore. I think, so. I think they're in Sunnyvale now. But these were uh, this is steel in court. It's quite a a storied place. It was Silicon Graphics uh, back in the day. I, I think it's Google now. In any case, 
was at LinkedIn a year before I was to leave. I remember pitching the idea of superhuman to the rest of my team. I remember saying, hey, hey, listen, you know, I, I kind of feel guilty. And they're like, well, why do you feel guilty? And I said, you know, before Reportive, no one really took browser extensions seriously, certainly not in Gmail. This idea that you could build a large multi-megabyte app and stick it in someone else's large multi-megabyte app and there not being any API or plugin architecture, that idea was considered insane. You certainly weren't meant to build a product that way, let alone a business. And yet, Reportive became this blueprint for so many other companies. Uh, you mentioned Honey, uh, which is kind of a little bit different because it works on, on every e-commerce e website, but just in productivity alone, you have things like uh, Clibit, Yesware, Mixmax, Boomerang, like you name it, people had it. And folks were running around with this crazy Byzantine email stack. Now, Gmail itself, I could see getting worse every single year. Those who remember Gmail when it first came out, 2004, 2005, we remember it being really fast, really clean. It did one thing, email, and it did it well. And over the years, it's got systematically worse. It's almost like a form of decay. You know, it's become slower. It's become more cluttered. It still has memory leaks. It turns out that Gmail in Chrome is the single biggest reason why your laptop would run out of battery. It still doesn't work properly offline. And then on top of that, people install all of these plugins, like my own reportive, but also all the other ones. And each of those plugins takes those problems and makes them dramatically worse. So I decided it was time for change. And we imagined an email experience that's blazingly fast, where every interaction takes place in 100 milliseconds or less, where searches feel instantaneous, where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard and fly through your inbox, an email experience that just worked offline so you could be productive from anywhere, and an email experience that had all the native Gmail functionality for the, the, you know, the, the plugin ecosystem just built in. So you didn't have to install a bunch of cruft into your productivity suite. And that was the original genesis for Superhuman. What did your team say when you pitched it to them? I don't even remember. I, th I think, like, <laughs> you know, it was, it was just one of those lunchtime pitches. They were like, cool, sounds hard, sounds really hard. And, uh, you know, I, I just kind of put it away. I, I didn't really think too much about it at the time. What year was, what year was that when you mentioned it to him? A year before you started? It would have been 2013. And then when did you start Superhuman uh, officially? Well, I left LinkedIn in March of 2014. And initially, I thought I would just go and start this thing. I was so, so excited to leave LinkedIn and to you know, be free and do whatever it was I wanted to do. And I went around all my VC buddies to, to get their advice. And one of the folks I went to meet was Adam Nash. Adam now runs products at Dropbox at the time. He was a, uh, an EIR at Greylock. And I, actually, I think he had become the CEO of Wealthfront. He had just stopped being an EIR. Uh, and I knew him because he used to be my boss's boss at LinkedIn. And I said, hey, Adam, this is my idea. What do you think of it? And he said, it doesn't matter what I think of the idea. And he looks me up and down and he says, you are in no condition 
to start another company right now. You are so burnt out. It's obvious just from looking at you. Are you, are you planning to take time off? And I said, yeah, I'm planning to take three months off. And he said, Mm-mm, that's wrong. However much time you think you need, multiply that estimate by three. That's how much time you actually need. And, and he turned out to be right. I spent the next nine months recovering from my burnout. I, d- I didn't even notice it at the time, but I was burnt out in some ways. I had like all of this baggage and this trauma that I was carrying with me. Most folks don't know this, but Reportive came within weeks, maybe about two weeks of running out of cash. That, that trauma stayed with me for a while, or many other things I was carrying with me. And it took time for the level of the damage. I mean, let's be real. We're talking about real psychological damage here. Biophysiological damage as well. I mean, you just run out of cortisol when you've stressed out for 17, 27 months in a row. I mean, dude, I don't want to get into the details on air, but like that last six to nine months, it was just 100% cortisol all the time. And what happened doesn't really matter. What matters is I didn't notice it happening. And when you don't notice it happening, it becomes this vicious cycle where your stress tolerance goes up. So you take on more stress. And so your stress tolerance goes up. And so you take on more. And before you know it, you're collapsing without any warning signs at all. You just, you just drop. Now, fortunately, I was out of the system. But it takes time for that to recover. It takes time for the body to calm down and relax. And so what I did during those nine months, it was just full decompression. I would go to the gym every day. I would enjoy the beautiful Californian weather. I would race. Uh, So at at the time, I was really, really into racing cars. And so uh, I traded in my old silly fast car, bought a new silly fast car, and would drive it around uh, the streets of San Francisco and Berkeley and down in Carmel and Monterey. And I took part in some some rallies and some street releases and it was a ton of fun. I partied a lot. I, I went out every single evening. I, I just did everything other than work. And my Silicon Valley friends were worried about me. They were like, are you ever going to get back into work? Because if you, it just seems like you're, you're doing this fun employment lifestyle 100% of the time. And we're worried that you won't get back into work. And and that was when I I realized something that, um, and I don't know whether you're like this or whether it's just me, but I don't necessarily feel the compulsion to work. I think there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are, for better or for worse, workaholics. They always feel the need to be doing something. That's not me. I work because I want to. I work because I'm passionate about the outcome and the, the the time that we're trying to save people. I don't work because I love work. I work because of what we're trying to achieve. And that was a big thing that I learned during that period. And so I ended up taking those nine months off. And when I felt rested and recovered enough, I eased into it. But you use the phrase putting on the rocket boosters. And I just knew from all of the epiphanies I had during this nine months off that 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 wasn't me. And that like training for lifting weights, you have to train to be a founder, to be an entrepreneur. 
And so I started by doing four hours a day. And then a month later, I amped it up to six hours a day. Very gentle. And then a month later, I amped it up to seven hours a day. And then eight hours a day. And so on and so forth. Until maybe a year later, I was working as hard as most founders and CEOs work. But I knew it would be foolish just to try and jump straight back into that level of intensity. When did you feel like, and and if they got this uh, amazing post about product market fit, from when you started it to uh, in those those four hours a day to when you felt like, okay, this is clicking, this is working, how long was that time frame? Mm. Well, I, th- I think you would know this as a founder that there's there's no binary click, right? So it, there are some days that feel up and there are some days that feel down. There are some months that feel up and there are some months that feel down. And I don't know if you remember the events of last summer, but it was the most exhilarating highs followed by the most excruciating lows. We we raised this amazing Series B from Andreessen Horowitz, Mark Andreessen himself and David Ulovich on the board, uh, $33 million. We're on the front page of the New York Times. We get written up in The Economist and in The Guardian, glowing reviews for Superhuman. $30 a month, get through your email twice as fast. Is it worth it? Absolutely, yes. And then a month later, we had this whole issue with restatuses. And yes, there were some, there were some genuine mistakes that we made. Obviously, now so it's corrected. But even when things are going super well, they can immediately turn around and you feel back at the bottom again. Do you mind telling listeners about, um, I, you know, I barely came across that, that news and I try to disconnect from the news as often as possible, but I barely came across it, but I imagine for you as the founder, it's, it is, it rocks the boat way more than anyone can imagine because it's, you know, it's a news article to other people, but to the founder, it's the livelihood of everyone on the team. It's the success of the company, it's, uh, customers. Do you mind articulating a little bit more for listeners what happened? Sure. And the CEO is always going to take these events more personally than anyone else in the company, even if it wasn't actually anything to do with them. In this case, this was totally to do with me. I had personally designed the feature in question. It's uh, the read status feature that is now essentially table stakes in, in many power user email tools. It lets you know when people open, opened your email, what device they were on. Was it a laptop? Was it a mobile phone? Because that lets you tweak your follow-up. Uh, and at the time, using IP geolocation, also a vague sense of location. Uh, we got about as granular as a city, but we ended up stopped using cities because for anyone who knows about geolocation, it's totally vague. Sometimes even the country is wrong. So it's, we mostly conveyed states and countries. So kind of like a face, Facebook message saying red or an iMessage saying this has been red, and then you also put in location. Right. And that was the controversial thing. It wasn't the fact that it said red, because as you pointed out, we're, we're all very used to that from iMessage and Facebook. It was that it was red in California and, and so on and so forth. Now, the reason we built that was because this was what our users wanted. They wanted to know where their emails, roughly speaking, were being read because, well, you've, you've done enterprise sales, but for those who haven't, you know, l- l- let me explain real quick. So, you're doing a sale, there's lots of stakeholders, they have offices on the West Coast, they have offices on the East Coast, you know that the decision makers, all generally speaking, are in the East Coast. If you send an email to 
a mid-tier manager and it's only ever read in California, even as they're forwarding it around, you know you didn't break through. You send an email and you can see on the analytics that it's actually also being read with some degree of confidence, perhaps 90% on the East Coast. Well, you've made progress and that's motivating. It's hopeful. You might have the bit of energy to timely reach out to whoever your contacts are on the East Coast and, and maybe land and close the deal. And so there's lots of really genuinely useful ways to use that kind of feature, uh, which, uh, like I said, very commonplace. If you look in uh, Mixmax and other tools like that, this very same feature exists. Now, here's what I didn't take into account, and this was my failing. At a certain point, and it was earlier than I had accounted for, every company has to start taking some degree of responsibility and accountability, not just to the customers they serve, but to the community and to the industry that they operate in. And the community that Superhuman operates in is the email network at large. It's the the internet at large. And we now, as an entity, have a certain level of responsibility to making sure that that infrastructure is good infrastructure and that it respects the rights of all of its participants, not just those of our customers. And that was uh, it was really an eye-opening moment for me because I mean, you mentioned the product market fit work. The product market fit work, which we're incredibly proud of, for those who don't know, it's like a systematic way, basically almost entirely guaranteed to optimize your way towards product market fits. And you've got a great essay on it uh, on, uh, on, I think it's your pinned tweet, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And, and if you're looking for it, just uh, Google superhuman first round product market fits. If you haven't used it, definitely go and use it. That piece of work is all around optimizing around the customer. But businesses do not exist in a vacuum. We exist in a rich and textured world where there are many other people to consider. And and that's now the lens that I view this with, which is not just what do our customers want or need, but what is right for the infrastructure of the internet at large. I can appreciate you have a, a much more, like we said, personal uh, receptivity to to criticism. It did, it did not seem like a very big deal to me. But what was, I guess, in that vein, what was your mental state when that when that happened? From the insane high of you know cover of New York Times to to oh shit, things are things could be falling apart, or you know this could be a turning point in in the perception of our our business and our brand. What was your mental state, for, and for how long was it in? Maybe uh, I'd say a darker, a darker uh, state than than where you might have been a, a month prior. I think I was in the dark state, as you put it, for maybe a few days. I didn't react. One of the hallmarks of our company is all of us were very deliberate, were very intentional, and I took the time. It was about forty-eight hours to really listen and to read every comment and to try and suspend any sense of ego or righteousness or indignation or all of these complex emotions that I may have been feeling and just to go, you know what? I could have been wrong. Let's really honestly, truly listen to what folks are saying and, and try and ignore the ad hominem. By the way, there was tons of ad hominem. 
right? People were trying to, there's nothing people love more than tearing down someone who's just, just apparently been successful. And it's hard to ignore that. I think the Germans call that uh, schadenfreude. (laughs) Yes, they do. So the hard thing was ignoring that. And fortunately, Andreessen Horowitz were amazing at this. And, And Mark and David would constantly be texting me reassuring words, you know, like, we've got your back. It's going to be fine. Just try and keep a level head. Really try and listen. And... Uh, providing perspective. You know, Mark's been on, on the board of Facebook for a really long time. He's seen these things come and go so many different times. And so I did. And, and following their advice, listened two days later, I wrote the most thoughtful response that I could, detailing that we'd heard, the things that we agreed with, explaining the position, but most importantly, articulating the changes that we were going to make. And how I saw our responsibility and position in the community going forwards. I think that deliberateness in the foreground, there might be mistakes made, but in the background, if that's how the company operates, it comes through in everything that you do and it's, and the mistakes are inevitable if you're putting yourself out there. It's, uh, but it's also, uh, if that thoughtfulness is a part of each decision, then like I said, from my perspective, I barely remember coming across it. And, and you know, I look at uh, technology companies for, for a living. In the topic of the dark space, you mentioned that reportive, and even when it was taking off, when it was kind of this fairy tale, the backdrop was, you know, an episode of depression coming off of second, the second failure. Have you been in, in uh, an episode of depression um, and, and founders are, are, thankfully extremely candid about this on the podcast. Have you been in an episode of depression since then? And was your entrepreneurial uh, career a, a contributing factor of that? Since the report of time? Yes, yes. Since, I guess, 2010. Yes, I, I imagine so. And, you know, sometimes it's to do with work. Sometimes it's to do with uh, things going on in my personal life. Uh, one that I've been fairly public about, I'm happy to share here, is in 2000 and clearly lost all track of time. So this year is 2020. Two years ago was 2018. That's right. So in 2018, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. And that means, uh, and it's, it's severe for me, my blood oxygen can, without wearing the machine overnight, can easily drop down to 80%. And I have 20 or 30 apneas a night, uh, for those who don't know what an apnea is, that's where you stop breathing for an extended period of time um, and like the body has to shift. And it, it's very, very disturbing to anyone who you happen to be sharing the bed with. It's also extremely unhealthy. Without treatment, you're at significantly, as in 10x higher risk for things like stroke and heart disease. And so that was a depressing moment for me to, to realize that you know I, I have a form of disability um, that I have to wear. It's not treatable. There is no surgery. There is no medication that fixes this. It's to do with the physiology of my face. But I have to wear a mask every single evening uh, as I sleep. I had to completely change the way that I sleep, go from a lifelong front sleeper to a back sleeper, which if anyone's had to do that, they'll know how incredibly hard that is to change how you sleep. To honestly get over the feeling of, of being disabled. It, it was really the first time in my life where I felt physically unable to do something. And the thing I was unable to do was sleep. 
So I was depressed for a period of time. But over time, I began to see perspective. And that, you know, one of the ways I, I achieved perspective was just this realization that I had never in my life truly gotten a good night's sleep. And now I've been given this gift. If only I could retrain my body and retrain how I sleep and to wear this mask, I can truly have restful sleep. And it's a gift I'm eternally grateful for. My mood is better. My creativity is higher. My focus is stronger. My attention is more acute. Everything that I do is better because I have this gift of modern medicine. Wow. Well, uh, thank you for sharing that. Two questions for you in this, and I know that uh, we're bumping up against time, but first is as a prolific investor and technologist um, and someone that's been ahead of the curve a handful of times, what is a trend? And I'm changing gears into just looking at at the technology space as a whole. What's a, What are some trends that you find interesting that you don't really see people talking about and and you, you feel like are under-discussed, like, you know, a few years ago, everyone was chatting about chatbots when probably should have been chatting about no-code companies or, or you know, VR, AR versus you know, the real trend was, or a the real hardware trend was actually Alexa and, and audio. Are there any trends that come to mind for you, and oh, totally okay if, if there aren't any, that people aren't talking about that you're noticing and feel like, okay, this is, this is going to be game-changing? Well, there are certainly some trends that people are talking about. And Todd, who I run the angel fund with, and I have made a number of investments in those trends. This huge transition to remote work, I think, will substantially persist once all of our shelters in place are done. And uh, for listeners who might be listening at a later date, today is June the 9th. So we're maybe about two months away from shelter-in-place ending, fingers crossed, here in California. And, you know, we're all very much feeling it. We're now all remote workers. And so we've been investing in tools to make that more effective. Tools like Tandem, which is uh, building the remote operating system for your company, one-click easy video hangouts, the replacement to the water cooler, Figma-style shared cursors, but for your entire operating system. Tools like Daily, which is a one-click way to add live video to any product. Every single web app that you can conceive of is now considering adding live video as folks can't meet one-to-one anymore. Right. So those great, are the obvious great, ones. Great company, yeah. The less obvious ones. Uh, there are companies like House, uh, direct-to-consumer companies. As people have not been able to buy alcohol by going to bars or by going out, the uh, the rate of alcohol consumption and purchasing in one's homes has skyrocketed significantly. And House is a low alcohol by volume aperitif, which because it's low alcohol by volume and because it's made from grapes, they're actually able to ship this directly to you. They don't need to rely on a drizzly or a saucy to get you the alcohol. And so they've seen this huge spike of sales. And, and for those who haven't tried it, it's really, really delicious. delicious. Check out House, yes. H-A-U-S. Um, so yeah, so, so those that, that's a trend that I think people haven't really cottoned onto. There's all kinds of new industries that are taking off because of this. So I'll, I'll give you one more. 
this this one's called Vori. So this is uh, grocery wholesale made easy. Most grocers, uh, mom and pop shop, mom and pop shops or small chains, they still do their inventorying by hand. They're maintaining spreadsheets by hand, submitting purchase orders by hand. This is a verticalized software to take that digital. And so you can digitally track all of the inventory in your grocery store and one click generates a purchase order, which is then submitted. And grocery sales have increased significantly over the past few months. It's one of the few areas of industry that's actually massively growing. Why? Well, because we're not eating out at restaurants anymore. And, and I'm a, a co-investor with with you, Todd. I doubt you know the, at Tandem and House. Love those two companies, but have heard amazing things about Daily and and Vori as well. Well, thank you so much, Rahul, for the generosity and time. I know we're bumping up on time, and you've got to get going. But where can people find out about you and Superhuman Online? I'm of course available on email. That's r a h u l at superhuman.com. Rahul at superhuman.com. I'm also active on Twitter, and that's my first name and last name r a h u l v o h r a. My DMs are open, so feel free to DM me if you want to. And if you're interested in Superhuman and getting through your email twice as fast, head over to superhuman.com and sign up. There is a wait list. It's about 320,000 folks long. So the best way is to get a referral if you can. But if you can't, just head over there and sign up. We are very diligently working through that wait list and we'll get to everyone as soon as we can. And I highly, highly recommend it uh, for folks. Thank you so much, Rahul, for the for the time and and candor. This conversation really appreciate it, and uh, let you get back to the important work. But I know that I, I'm speaking on behalf of, of all listeners. Thank you so much for the insight shared, James. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day, bud. You too. friends and listeners. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at GoBelowTheLine as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.